Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Monday, February 28th, 2022. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for a loaded episode of the Aerator Sports Podcast. Here is what you need to know. We got chaos here on the last day of February heading into March. March is indeed coming. Lead topic, you guys and girls know where I'm going to go. Saturday, chaos in college basketball. Top six teams in America lose. What I'll go ahead and do is rank those losses. From most concerning in terms of the teams, their future, their championship aspirations to the most concerning. So least concerning to most concerning. Who am I not worried about? Who am I totally worried about here going forward? From there, we'll take a quick break. I want to talk a little bit about Arkansas basketball. Arkansas, I saw something on Saturday that I love. Not just from Arkansas, but from college basketball as a whole. They beat Kentucky. We'll talk a little bit about that. We will continue the conversation with College Hoops. Syracuse loses to Duke. Is it finally time for Jim Boeheim to step aside? And then we'll wrap actually with a little bit of college football. As Art Bryles back in the news at Grambling State, I will obviously share some thoughts on that. With that said, though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, as I just said literally 30 seconds ago, chaos in college basketball. For the first time ever. We've been doing AP polls since before I was born, since before you were born, since before who even knows what. And never in the history of the AP poll have we ever had the top six teams, the top six, all lose on the same day. Oh, that was until Saturday when all six top-ranked teams all went on the road and all took losses varying from not shocking at all because some were underdogs going in, some were not favored, to just absolute stunners. Number one, Gonzaga falls at St. Mary's. Number two, Arizona falls at uh, Colorado. Auburn falls at Tennessee. Purdue falls at Michigan State. Kansas loses at Baylor. Kentucky loses at Arkansas. And so what I want to do is I want to break them down. As I said a minute ago, I want to rank them from least concerning to most concerning. But before we do, I I do want to do a quick little disclaimer as to what I will not be talking about this segment. And so if you listen to this show, and you obviously listen because you downloaded it, you're listening right now. 
One thing I, I think I'm pretty good at, and one thing I think you guys and girls probably respect a little bit about me, is there are some things in life that I'm not good at, and I don't claim to be, okay? Um, I don't claim to be a college football recruiting guru. When, when, when Arch Manning, uh, Peyton Manning's nephew, Eli Manning's nephew here commits in a few weeks, uh, he'll probably commit sometime in April, May, June, whatever. I'm not going to come on here and break down film and explain why he's the best quarterback since XY. That's not who I am. It's not what I do. It's not what I'm good at. Um, I'm not an NFL insider. If Aaron Rodgers demands a trade, I might talk about where I think it's interesting for him to go, but I'm not going to sit here and claim, I know for certain he's going to Pittsburgh. And if I do, I'll share it, but I generally don't have that kind of information. The other thing that I never claim to be, I never claim to be a bracketologist, okay? I think covering bracketology in college basketball, I think I'm pretty good on college basketball. I think I would argue I'm one of the best people covering college basketball in terms of information, unique insight, all that good stuff. But I would never claim, the one thing I don't claim within the college basketball space is to be any type of bracketologist. It is a completely separate world. It is a completely different uh, space of covering college basketball. And it's something that I frankly know nothing about. You know, if, uh, if Tennessee beats Auburn on Saturday... I don't know where that ranks. Do they go from a five seed to a four seed? What does it mean? For the, it's, it's a completely different way to cover college basketball. And so as all these upsets were happening on Saturday, a lot of you were asking me, Torres, I'm a Kentucky fan. What does it mean? Can we still get a number one seed? Arizona fans, Torres, what does it mean? Are we going to fall off the one line? And to be blunt, I don't really know. I would guess in general, it's probably a pretty good sign that if you're competing for a number one seed all the teams that you're competing with, really except for Baylor, all lost on Saturday. So to me, I don't think that weirdly, because there was so much carnage, because so much craziness happened at the top of the sport, it seems to me that the number one side, one seed lines weren't really affected. Uh, maybe Baylor snuck in. I saw Joe Lenardi say they have a more compelling case for a number one seed, but Gonzaga didn't really hurt him because Arizona, Auburn, Kentucky all lost. Kansas lost. Uh, same with Arizona, same with Kansas, same with Kentucky, whatever. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I think it probably helped more the Tennessees, the Arkansas, the schools like that in terms of maybe moving up a seed line. So what I don't want to do over the next few minutes is try and pretend to tell you, well, this Gonzaga's in trouble for a number one seed. And if they lose in the WCC semifinals, let me tell you, Kansas could sneak. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do think I'm pretty good at, what I do think I can do is contextualize all of the losses on Saturday. And what I want to do now is, as I said at the beginning, what I want to do now is it is officially, it's February 28th. Uh, the last week of the regular season is upon us. Tomorrow will be March, which means that it is officially time, and we've done it over the last few weeks, to start talking about these teams' strengths, weaknesses, who can do it, who can't. And about three, four weeks ago, I did the five teams that I thought could win it all. Last week, I did the power, I did the uh, updated national title odds of best and worst value. And what I want to do today is talk about these six teams, the six teams that lost on Saturday, and I want to power rank them from least concerning loss on Saturday to most concerning loss on Saturday, because I think for some of these teams, the loss means absolutely nothing, and for the some of the others, I think it is now officially very concerning, and I do think it, it might be time to reorder kind of the pecking order of who can actually win it all, who are we worried about, who, who are we not worried about. And so with that said, what I want to do Top six teams in the country, all lost. Again, as a quick reminder, 
Gonzaga lost at St. Mary's, Arizona lost to Colorado, Auburn lost to Tennessee, Purdue lost at Michigan State, Kansas lost at Baylor, Kentucky lost at Arkansas. And what I want to do is rank the losses from least concerning to most concerning. From six to one, six is the least concerned I am about a team, one is the most concerned I am. And so let's start with number six, and in terms of the least concerned out of every team out of the top six that lost on Saturday, I would say number six is the Arizona Wildcats. And I know that every time I talk about Arizona, there's this immediate, oh, they play in the Pac-12, they're not tested, they won't be ready, whatever. And what I would say is, listen, I don't think the Pac-12 is the best conference in college basketball. Then again, I didn't think it was the best conference last year, and they had, what, three teams in the Elite Eight and four teams in the Sweet 16? I remember joking about that during the NCAA tournament. Maybe Bill Walton was the only sane one all along. But I bring it up because when I look at Saturday, the least concerned out of all of these teams that I am is of Arizona. Because there's a couple reasons why. First of all, it's what I always talk about. This is February. You have to go on the road. At some point, teams are going to lose. First of all, for Arizona, the great news is they're basically at full strength. You don't have to worry about injuries. You don't have to worry about a weird quirk. You don't have to worry about Colorado exposing something that you maybe it's it's a big flaw that can be exposed in the tournament. I just think that Arizona, when we talk about them, they've lost one game since Christmas. They're 14-1 in their last 15 games, and this was their fourth road game in six games. And at some point, you're just going to have a bad game. And if you look at the stats, the stats kind of back that up, okay? So first of all, I always talk about the offense because I think the offense is the more interesting thing with Arizona. I think it'd be easy to say, well, this proves if you can slow them down, you can beat them. Well, yeah, if you hold any team to 63 points, you can beat them in the NCAA tournament. The problem is we now have a four-month sample size of teams trying to slow down Arizona, and nobody has really been successful, including some of the best defensive coaches in college basketball, whether it's Dana Altman, whether it's uh, Mick Cronin, whether it's whoever. Uh, Not a lot of people have been successful slowing down Arizona. And so to me, the question becomes, was Arizona actually quote-unquote slowed down? Or did they? I don't know. Call me crazy. Just miss some shots that they normally make. Because to me, it's the latter. Arizona on the season shoots 57% from two-point range in terms of inside the three-point arc. They shot 45% on Saturday. They shoot 35% from three. They shot 28% on Saturday. So yes, this could be the downfall of Rome. This could be the sign that they were overrated all along. Or this could just be a game where they miss some shots they normally make. The other thing that stood out to me definitively is what I told you last week about Arizona. Everybody is so focused on Arizona's offense, and with good reason. It's fun to watch. I think they're the most fun team in college basketball to watch when they're clicking. What I don't think people realize, though, is that the defense has been excellent all season long. And so when I look at this game, that's why I'm not worried. Because this was the one-game outlier defensively as well for Arizona. Came into the game ranked number three nationally in field goal percentage defense, allowing 38% shooting from opposing teams. Only Houston and Gonzaga were better, uh, or only Houston was better or whatever, and they allowed 48% from the field on Saturday. So yes, maybe this proves that they were overrated all along. Maybe you should be mortified, and maybe this is reason you don't pick Arizona in your bracket. Or maybe it was just a weird loss that you have in February, there's nothing you can do, and you move on. Out of all six top six teams that are ranked, I am least concerned about this loss for Arizona. In terms of the next team that I am least concerned about when it comes to Saturday's losses, I'll put Kentucky at number five, and I actually almost had them at number six. Because first of all, they went on the road, 
They were actually an, uh, an underdog on the road. They were not expected to win, according to the odds makers in Vegas. So it's hard to criticize Kentucky for losing a game that the odds makers said, you're probably not going to win. Top 20 team on the road. Arkansas has obviously beaten Tennessee in the last couple weeks at home, Auburn the last couple weeks at home. They play LSU this weekend. And so I bring it up because if you're a Kentucky fan, I don't know that you should be worried because I don't know that anybody expected you to win. As a matter of fact, I'll take it a step further. I would argue, and I might have made this argument on Friday's show, I can't remember. I think this might actually be the, the most impressive three-game stretch of Kentucky season. And what does that mean? Well, listen, if you follow college basketball, you know that Kentucky has not been at full strength, has not been 100% healthy over the last couple games. Their starting backcourt, Severe Wheeler, Ty Ty Washington, was out each of the last two games. Neither of them started on Saturday against Arkansas, although both played significant time. And so for Kentucky to go 2-1 and one over that stretch, so they had three games without their starting backcourt at 100%. Beat Alabama, which is going to be an NCAA tournament team, beat LSU, which is going to be an NCAA tournament team, and easily could have won at Arkansas on Saturday. Great game. Arkansas deserved to win. It's no discredit to them. But for Kentucky to go 2-1 and one over that stretch without its starting backcourt for two of those games and without those guys at 100% for one of them, I actually have come away more impressed with Kentucky over this last three-game stretch than I am concerned. And out of the six teams that lost, I think you can make the argument that they should be number six in terms of least concerning. On top of that, I think, look, Oscar Shibway had another incredible game. I mean, when Arkansas fans are praising him, talking about how incredible he is, 30 points and 18 rebounds, I think it speaks to uh, Kentucky uh, or Oscar Shibway and kind of his candidacy as a national player of the year. Um, but overall, I just, like, I have no concerns about Kentucky in terms of if they can get to full strength that they're a title contender. Why I did not have them at number six, though, is because I do think it is kind of officially time to worry about are we going to see this team ever at full strength again, okay? Because I'm not wishing ill will. And as I said on Friday's show, I do not blame John Calipari for not playing his guys in a hot, you know, this late in the season because you got to get ready for the SEC tournament and you got to get ready for those six games in the NCAA tournament that will ultimately define this team's legacy. But at the same time, I think it's time to start calling a spade a spade. And we are now at a point where really if you go back to, say, the start of SEC play, late December, early January, it is now late February, and I think you could probably make an argument, I don't even think it's up for debate, that really over the past two months, Kentucky has spent more time at less than full strength than they have at full strength. And to be clear, listen, this is basketball, it's a, it's a long season, you're going to have injuries. But when you have a guy, Ty Ty Washington, who has had two separate ankle injuries, taking a long time to come back from each, that becomes concerning. When Severe Wheeler had two different kind of head trauma injury type things, concussion, and I know the second one against Auburn, he came back into the game, and then you have a separate injury on top of that, at some point you got to be concerned just can this guy stay healthy over the course of a 40-game college basketball season. Jacob Toppin's been nicked up as well. So in terms of Kentucky, listen, I'll just say this. If Kentucky is 100%, I think you can actually make the case they are the best team in college basketball. It might. I don't want to say it's not a debate. But I don't really know that it's actually a debate that Kentucky, Kentucky might be the best team in the country. I mean, when they were at full strength, they beat Tennessee by 30, and they beat Kansas by 20 on the road. If they can get back to that, I think they're probably the best team in college basketball. My question is, can they actually get back there? Ranking teams from least concerning loss on Saturday to most concerning number four out of the six, it is Gonzaga. And so listen, again, Gonzaga, it's what I always say. 
I know what you want to say. This proves their conference stinks. They're overrated. They're this, they're that, they're whatever. And, like, if that's your takeaway, like, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. I'm not going to sit here and debate with you. I'm not going to sit here and yell and scream with you. What I would also say is that when it comes to Gonzaga's conference, the WCC, um, they're probably going to get more NCAA tournament teams than, than the ACC is. And so if you want to argue that Gonzaga doesn't play anybody, well, again, I've said it for weeks. You better argue that Duke doesn't play anybody either. I would also say that Gonzaga, or that this St. Mary's team that Gonzaga lost to on Saturday They already beat Notre Dame, which is a potential tournament team. They already beat Oregon, which is a potential tournament team. Um, They have some really nice wins on their resume out of conference against Power 5 teams. What I would also say about this loss uh, is that I do believe that St. Mary's is kind of uniquely built to beat Gonzaga. Everybody knows, I I, I don't think everybody knows, but I think there's two clear ways that if you're you're game planning to beat Gonzaga, there's two clear things that you want to do. One, you want to really, really, really slow down the game as much as you can, almost like what, um, almost like what UCLA did in the Final Four last year, where they basically, um, you know, where they basically, uh, you know, ground the game to an absolute halt against Gonzaga. Well, some teams can try to do that, and some teams just do it naturally. And St. Mary's is one of them. St. Mary's is ranked three hundred twenty third out of 358 teams in college basketball in terms of tempo, which means they play really slow, they take a lot of time off the clock, and they get really highly efficient shots. So some teams are going to try to do that in March, but that's not who they are. That is who St. Mary's is. They were at home. And on top of that, if you watch St. Mary's, they're kind of this big, physical, rugged team, a bunch of Australian guys. I'm not generalizing or stereotyping Australian guys, but just big, tough, physical in the paint. And they were able to kind of just mess with Chet Holmgren, who's a very skilled big, but just, listen, I don't think I'm knocking him. He's not very strong, right? He's 190 pounds at seven foot one. He'll get there. He'll be a good NBA player, but he's not there yet. And so I think St. Mary's at home, I watched the first game that these two teams played, and St. Mary's, they, 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 they trailed for most of the game, but really cut the lead to about, I don't know, six, seven, eight points late in that game and had a chance even the first time that these two teams played in Spokane to get a win so on Saturday they do actually pull off the victory and what I would say is in terms of the big picture I'm not terribly concerned about Gonzaga I don't think they're the overwhelming national title favorite like the sports books tell you which I discussed on on Friday's episode but at the same time I do think that St. Mary's because of how they play because of their personnel I do think they put together the blueprint to beat Gonzaga if you have the right team and the right personnel First of all, when it comes to Gonzaga, again, there's two ways. You slow them down, um, you, bully, you bully everybody down low, and this is where I get concerned with Gonzaga. Is First of all, I don't think that they have the guards that can absolutely take over games like they did last year. Listen, we can criticize Gonzaga for losing in the national title game. We can criticize um, you know, all sorts of whatever you want to criticize. They were a really awesome college basketball team last year, and I always joke about it. It's like, listen, sometimes in college basketball, there are just teams that are, you know, sometimes you just run into a team that's better than you in March, and it doesn't mean you're bad, and it doesn't mean you're overrated. It just means that somebody was better than you, and that was exactly what happened last year in the NCAA tournament. Gonzaga steamrolls through the regular season. They steamroll through the NCAA tournament, destroy Creighton, destroy USC, and then they get to a Final Four, and they just ran into a better team in Baylor than them. 
But it doesn't change the fact that they had guys that could completely take over games. Jalen Suggs, 14.5 points, 5 rebounds, 4.5 assists per game, 2 steals, was probably the most dynamic guard in college basketball. That's why he was a top 5 pick. Corey Kispert, 19 points per game, 44% from 3. My boy, I haven't talked about him in a while. I miss him so much. Joel, ayayi! 12 points, 7 boards, 2.5 assists per game. They had guys that could take over games, and I just don't think Gonzaga has those guys this year. On top of that, when you can get low, when you can bully Chet Holmgren, when you can limit Drew Timmy, which is everything that St. Mary's did, um, I do think they're much more beatable than they were last year. At the same time, they have not lost since December, and at the same time, I do believe that St. Mary's is uniquely built to beat them. I am not as worried about this Gonzaga loss as everybody else. I don't think it proves anything uh, other than that they can win a national championship, but they're not an overwhelming favorite like they were a year ago. Uh, let's get to number three on the most concerned to the least concerned to most concerned. Number three is Kansas. And in Kansas' defense, what I would say is I would argue they're right up there with Kentucky, which lost at Arkansas, and Auburn, which lost to Tennessee in terms of the toughest games on Saturday. So, like, yes, I understand that Kansas lost. Not many teams are supposed to go into the, the reigning national champion on a Saturday night, top 10 team, maybe the best player in the Big 12, James Akinjo, outside of Ochai Abaji, two first-round picks on the wing, uh, and not, you're, you're not supposed to win that game. And so on the one hand, like, no, I'm not. Like, I don't think that proves Kansas is overrated. Kansas is terrible. But what I will say, Kansas was my preseason national championship pick. Kaka, kaka, kaka. My pick, Kansas. I do think Saturday showed much like Gonzaga, with the right matchup, oh, they can be beaten absolutely no doubt. And my biggest concern with Kansas, I talked about it on last show in terms of the national title odds, is that they have the best player in the Big 12, probably the uh, first-team All-American in Ochai Abaji. But outside of that, they, have, they don't have a ton of guys that you can absolutely rely on night in, night out, night in, night out, game in, game out, right? Um, they don't have consistent low post play with David McCormick. Their wings are good, but with the right matchups can be taken out. Well, what happened on Saturday? Baylor has two guys, Kendall Brown, Jeremy Sohan, who are going to be first-round picks on the wing, great defenders, and what happened? Ochai Abaji was absolutely awesome, and then from there, everybody else struggled. Christian Brown, who has been a revelation this year, 17 points, but it came on 6-13 shooting from the field. Uh, struggled to really kind of get going. Jalen Wilson, seven points in that loss. And so when it comes to Kansas, like, yeah, they had the probably the quote-unquote best loss of everybody in college basketball on Saturday except for maybe Kentucky. But I do think that it showed cause for concern. Like I said, outside of Ochai who are the guys that you can consistently rely on every single game? Jalen Wilson has his moments, averages 11 points per game. He had seven the other day. Christian Brown, 6-13 from the field. One assist, one turnover. All I'm saying is, I like Kansas, I don't love them, and I do think there's a very clear blueprint to beat them, and that's why I would be worried. By the way, the teams that they've struggled with this year, uh, lost to Texas Tech, easily could have lost the second game against Texas Tech. Texas Tech is one of the elite defensive teams in college basketball. Kentucky has guys on the perimeter that can take you out of your comfort zone with Jacob Toppin, etc. Kentucky destroyed them, and then again, Kansas lost on Baylor, lost to Baylor on Saturday. Let's get to number two and number one, and this is where I think we definitively learned, okay, there's some real concern for these teams going forward, and maybe it might even be time to eliminate them as national championship conversations. I think we learned a lot about both of these teams on Saturday. 
and the two teams, the first one, we'll start at number two and then we'll go to number one. Number two, most con- least concerned to most concerned. So least concerned, number six is Arizona, number five is Kentucky, number four is Gonzaga, number three is Kansas. Number two, out of all the teams, I was most concerned about every team the most except for this one. Number two is the Purdue Boilermakers. And listen, all year long, people have been trying to sell me on Purdue. Purdue, this is the year, national championship, this and that. What I said is, I'm, I, I don't really see it. You know, uh, I, I know I'm doing my Larry David pretty, pretty, pretty good voice. They're pretty, pretty good. They're not great. They're not going to win a national championship. And I think Saturday proved it. First of all, the defense has been discussed at length, right? Um, and I think at this point, the defense has actually gotten better. And the conversation is kind of become so over. So, the defense has become so quote unquote overrated that they're actually a little bit underrated defensively right now. Okay, I don't think they're a perfect defensive team, but if you look at their last several games, sixty-eight points allowed to Michigan State, uh, seventy-two allowed to Rutgers, sixty-four to Northwestern, sixty-one to Maryland. For the most part, they have been pretty good defensively over the last couple weeks. Now, over the totality of the season. They rank in the 180s in terms of defensive efficiency, and you can't win a national championship if you're that good. Listen, you know how everybody on social media likes to argue about everything? And you could be like, the sky is blue, and they'll be like, well, let me tell you. And I talked about this the other day with all these guys on social media. You know how people like to argue? Oh, the sky's blue. No, I don't know. You see last Tuesday? A little bit gray. Well, listen, everybody likes to argue about all sorts of things, especially sports-related. You cannot argue. It is not debatable. If you are as bad defensively as Purdue is over the course of the season, you can't win a national championship. History says it is impossible. So that's my first concern with Purdue. You can argue with me. You can debate me. You can say, yeah, but in 1948. No, listen. Historically, if you are as bad as Purdue is defensively, you can't win a national championship. Here's where I'm getting a little concerned, though. I watched that that Michigan State game closely, and I've watched Purdue a ton this year. I actually think the offense has more concerns than you know, then people talk about, everybody talks about the defense. I'm a little worried about the offense. And on the one hand, you can sit there and say, how can you be worried about the offense? Well, let me explain why. So why I have this swap Torres. I say stuff that nobody else will say. I don't care. I'll say it. First of all, yes, they average 81 points per game. But if you actually break down the numbers, about 70% of that offense comes from four different guys. Their star point guard, Jaden Ivory, averages 17 a game. Their big center, who I actually really like, we'll get to him in a minute, Zach Eady, averages 14.8 points per game in just 19 minutes of play. So that's an insane, like, that's an average of close to 30 points per game over 40 minutes. Uh, Their other big guy, Travion Williams, averages 11.9 points per game. Sasha Stavanovich averages right around 11. So here's the deal. First of all, the offense is so great, except that like 70% of the offense comes from four guys, and as we saw on Saturday against Michigan State, um... As we saw on Saturday against Michigan State, if one of them has a bad game, and Sasha Stavanovich did, all of a sudden, they're not that great offensively. All of a sudden, they need other guys to do things that they're not capable of doing. Kentucky has five, six, seven guys that can get you 20 points. Uh, Duke has five, four, five, six guys that can get you 20 points. Um, you know, Gonzaga has four, five guys that can do that. Purdue has basically like one guy that can get you 25, two guys that can get you 20, one guy that can get you 15. And nobody else that can do anything. So that's one. Two, Zach Eady, their big guy, was in foul trouble on Saturday. And I will say, if you've never watched Purdue, he's this seven foot four behemoth. And to his credit, he kind of stays out of foul trouble. I think that's why Matt Painter only plays him about 19 minutes per game. But if you watch Purdue, 
I mean, he is called differently in terms of how the referees handle him. And it's because he's seven foot four and they don't know what to do with him. So one, he was in foul trouble all day on Saturday. I know foul trouble generally hasn't been a concern, but it limits how much you can play him. Here's the last thing on Purdue's offense that I saw on Saturday that I think people would deem to be a hot take. I believe I'm correct. I don't believe it's a hot take. So as I said, Purdue has this kid, Jaden Ivey. Point guard, uh, he's going to be a top 10 pick. He might be a top five pick. He's got a lot of John Morant in his game, 17 points per game, five rebounds, 37% from three. Really, really, really talented player. Um, And he might be the best player in this tournament, right up there with Jabari Smith, Paolo Bancaro, Johnny Davis from Wisconsin, whatever. Here's my concern, though. If you actually watch Purdue, I believe they have a little bit of an identity crisis when it comes to who they are offensively. That's going to sound crazy. They average 81 a game. They're one of the best offensive. How could you say that, Torres? Well, let me explain. Let me chill out. Let me explain. When you watch Purdue, watch closely next time. They have this kid, Jaden Ivey. He's amazing. He's awesome. He's fun. He's great with college basketball. He's great on highlights. Everything. Every time he does something, Twitter goes crazy. But if you actually watch Purdue, this is what I believe. Their best offense is when they dump the ball to Zach Eady, their big seven foot four center. Because if you watch him, when he catches the ball in the post, there's nothing you can do. He's seven foot four. He has a soft touch. You have to double him. He's a good passer out of the post. And Purdue is actually at its best, kind of playing this old school Big Ten grinded out basketball. But they have this new age point guard that's like John Morant, and he wants to take over, but then he knows that sometimes he needs to dump the ball to the post. And so when I look at Purdue, it's no disrespect, but I think the defense proves you can't win a national championship, but I think the offense has issues as well in terms of an identity. I still think this is probably a Sweet 16 team. I think they're going to be a number one or number two seed. I think they can get to an Elite Eight, even a Final Four. I do not believe they can win a national championship, though. And when you're talking about a top five team in the country, Obviously, the expectation is national championships. Finally, number one, who am I most concerned about after Saturday? Well, you do some mental math. I already talked about Arizona, talked about Kentucky, talked about Gonzaga, talked about Kansas, talked about Purdue. Number one team in the country I'm most concerned about after Saturday, it's Auburn. And a couple things. One, Auburn fans, don't tell me I hate your team. Two weeks ago, I said there's only five teams in the country that can win the national championship. Auburn was one of them. On top of that, love Bruce Pearl. Been great to me. Great guest on this show, has always given me his time. Very grateful for Bruce Pearl and what he does for me and this show. With that said, though, like we we have you, you understand, like we it's time to be concerned, right? Auburn fans is oh, it's this, it's that, we're still this, we're still that. Last five road games, Auburn has now gone two and three overall. And in those two, the two wins were against Georgia by two points, Missouri by one, the two worst teams in the SEC. And I understand that, yes, you lost at Arkansas, a top 20 team. Yes, you lost to Tennessee on Saturday, a top 20 team. Yes, you lost to Florida, which may make the NCAA tournament. But on top of that, what I would be worried about, Auburn hasn't looked that great at home of late. Fell down 14-3 against Vanderbilt the other day. uh, Struggled against Ole Miss to put them away. Auburn played its best basketball a month ago. And so I think in terms of the X's and O's of it, one, I hate to be critical, don't like to criticize 18, 19-year-old kids. Their guards just aren't good enough. And this has been a topic of conversation from the beginning. I remember watching them in uh, December against St. Louis and saying, like, St. Louis has better guards than Auburn. Now, Walker Kessler's amazing. Jabari Smith is amazing. But St. Louis has better guards than Auburn. And it's been kind of backed up over the last couple games. Saturday at Tennessee, there's no doubt who the better backcourt was. It was Kennedy Chandler. It was Guy Ziegler. Seb Jasper, 0 of 2 from the field. 
one assist, one turnover. Wendell Green, two of 15 from the field. Both these guys, by the way, transferred up from the low major level, and it takes time. And some of these guys don't click. And it's not a criticism, and it's not say they're bad people or bad humans or bad whatever. I just don't know that they're good enough. And so when I look at Auburn, I could go on and on and on and on and on. But I look at this Auburn team, and I said it the other day, but it's the truth. They remind me of the 2019 Tennessee Volunteers. Remember all, remember Tennessee 2019 a few years ago? They were number one in the country for basically the entire season. Grant Williams, Admiral Schofield, Jordan Bone. And for like December, they just steamroll everybody. They beat Gonzaga in this instant classic game. January, they get to number one in the country. Late January, they're awesome. And then all of a sudden in February, start to lose a game here. Not as dominant there. Close game here that shouldn't be there. Get to the SEC tournament, ironically get killed by Auburn. And then from there, end up losing in the NCAA tournament in the Sweet 16 to Purdue. And so sometimes in college basketball, this just happens, right? It was a little bit, we got a little bit of that with Michigan last year, where they were awesome, like unbeatable in December and January and late January and early February. And then they just kind of hit a wall. And I kind of feel that way with Auburn. Of all the teams that played on Saturday that lost those top six teams, Auburn is the one I am most concerned about. I just want to do, I want to take a quick break. I do want to come back. And when I come back, what I would like to do is discuss some of the other things that happened, the big picture stuff in college basketball. And I want to start with what happened at Arkansas with Kentucky. I just talked about Kentucky. I'm not worried about Kentucky, obviously. But I saw something at Auburn that I love. That This is a new trend in college sports that I absolutely love. I think it was epitomized on Saturday with Arkansas. I'm going to discuss that next. You don't need to be an Arkansas fan, by the way. I think if you're a college sports fan, if you want your program to be good, pay attention to this next segment. I'll be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears. And I do kind of, I actually want to take a deeper dive into one of the big games from Saturday. And I, I obviously just spent a ton of time talking about each of them. We're not going to go game by game again. But while there were a lot of great games at college basketball on Saturday, Gonzaga, St. Mary's, Auburn, Tennessee, um, you know, whoever, Purdue, Michigan State, on and on, Baylor, Kansas, there was one game that there was something that happened to me that I think is a bigger metaphor for a bigger picture topic in college basketball that I want to discuss, and that was what happened with the Kentucky-Arkansas game, okay? And so what I don't want to do is spend the next few minutes breaking down that game. I just broke it down from both perspectives. I really broke it down from the Kentucky perspective a minute ago. Uh, I am not worried about Kentucky because they lost to a top 15 team on the road in Arkansas in one of the most hostile environments in college basketball. In some ways, I think it's actually, you got to wake up feeling better about being a Kentucky fan saying, that was one of the best performances we've had all year. Give us our guards, get us healthy, get us to March, we're going to be fine. I also don't want to spend a ton of time talking about Arkansas because I feel like I did that after the Auburn game, right? I did the bigger picture. This is what it means for Arkansas. This is how far they've come. This is why Coach Muss is incredible, blah, 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 blah. And I am going to talk about Coach Muss a little bit later. But in the meantime, what I want to do is I want to talk about something that I believe is actually a bigger picture metaphor for something that is changing in college sports. And I noticed it while watching this Arkansas-Kentucky game. It's something that hasn't happened, you know, it hasn't been kind of common uh, practice since I've started watching college sports. It isn't something that I think has really started to develop only until the last two, three, four years, 
But I saw something in that game that I think in the bigger picture is something really cool, a groundswell that is happening in college sports. And so let me explain. And before I do, let me give you some context as to how I came up kind of with this idea and kind of this segment as a whole. So a few days ago, I was listening to uh, one of Colin Cowherd's podcasts, and, and if you listen to this show, you obviously know uh, I have a great deal of respect for Colin. Um, you know, I've been on his show. I know him a little bit. Wouldn't claim he's a friend or anything like that, but I think he's really good at what he does. I know enough people that have worked for him. I know how hard he works, um, and I just think he's great at what he does. And so about three, four days ago, I'm listening to one of his podcasts, and he has Ryan Rossillo on. Ryan Rossillo from The Ringer was on ESPN Forever, whatever. And he asked Ryan Rossillo. He says, what is your favorite thing about sports in 2022 that is different from, say, when you were growing up watching as a kid? Um, and Colin kind of listed his favorite thing, which, which I'm going to get to my favorite thing in a minute. But Colin's favorite thing was pretty straightforward. He said, look, I love this new era of front office executives and GMs and coaches at the professional level that are fearless in how they run things, right? There was a way to do things in the NFL for 30, 40, 50 years, and all of a sudden that has been flipped on its head. You have the Los Angeles Rams that have basically said, we don't care about first-round picks. Give me Jalen Ramsey. Give me Odell Beckham. Give me Matt Stafford. We'll trade whatever. We can't worry about some cornerback from Abilene Christian that we might get in the early second round or late first round when we can get uh, a difference-making quarterback or the best corner in the league in Jalen Ramsey or whatever. Same in basketball, right? It used to be you can't give up first-round picks. Now it's like, oh, I can get Kawhi Leonard? Here's three of them. I can get Anthony Davis. Here's four of them. No big deal. And so Colin said that's kind of what his favorite thing is in in sports right now. And I was kind of sitting there thinking, okay, so what is my favorite thing about college sports? And ironically, I think my favorite thing about or favorite thing about sports in general. And I think ironically, my favorite thing is very similar to Colin's favorite thing, uh, but just at the college sports level. And what I love about college sports, what I love the thing that has changed the most in my life in college sports is the fearlessness and aggressiveness with which college athletics departments now run themselves. The idea that being good is no longer good enough, that being okay is no longer acceptable, that if we're doing this, we are competing at the single highest level that we possibly can, and if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right, we're going to put the money in, we're going to hire the right guys, that is my favorite change of college sports because I don't believe that that has been the case for most of when I watch. And so it's interesting because I actually talked about this a little bit on last Monday's show when we were talking about the expanded college football playoff. I said, look, I think there's all these people that think, oh, we just expand the playoff. It solves college football's problems. No, it doesn't. Ole Miss getting destroyed by Alabama doesn't fix college football's problems. Neither does it for Michigan State, Pitt, whoever would have made it this year. But what I did tell you was the best thing for college football and for the health of college football has already happened. It's a school like Miami sitting, or let's start with USC, school like USC deciding, you know what, we're tired of just being okay. We're tired of being 8-4. and four. We're tired of being 9-3 and three because we know that we can be 12-0, 13-0 playing for college football playoff spots. Let's fire Clay Helton. Let's pay him what it takes to get rid of him, and let's do whatever we can to get the best coach we possibly can, and they did it with Lincoln Riley. Is it going to work out with Lincoln Riley? I don't know. But at the same time, I love the fearlessness with which USC made that decision. It's the same with Miami. Mario Cristobal. I don't know if, my, if it's going to work for Mario Cristobal at Miami, but there was like a 15-year track record where Miami was just like, doesn't really matter who coaches us. We're Miami. We'll be fine. 
And then you realize, no, no, it's not. It's not going to work if you're Manny Diaz. It's not going to work if you're Randy Shannon. It's not going to work if you're Al Golden. Go get the best coach, the biggest name, the guy with the most success, the guy from the area, the guy that played at the school. Let's see if Mario Cristobal works, and let's pay what it takes to get him here. And so this is a long way for me to get to Arkansas basketball. But I think at the college basketball level, there is no better example of that mindset than what we've seen at Arkansas. And while I think we need to credit Eric Musselman, who I just discussed, and we'll talk about him in a minute, while we need to credit J.D. Note, who was a star, while we need to credit Justin Smith and Jalen Tate and Moses Moody and all these guys that were on the team last year, while we need to credit Mason Jones, who was there the year before, I believe that there is one man that probably isn't getting enough credit for the success of Arkansas basketball, and that is their AD Hunter Yurchek. And to be clear, I don't know Hunter Yurchek. I've never met him. It's not, I'm not doing this segment as a favor to him. But what I love is what he did about five, six years, or about four years ago, okay? So about four years ago, Mike, Mike Anderson is the head coach at Arkansas. And things are going by any stretch of the imagination pretty good. Like, I just did the Larry David, pretty good, pretty, pretty, pretty good. I don't know if it was pretty, pretty, pretty good, but it was, like, pretty good. It was okay. Mike Anderson was there for eight years. He won a lot of games. And this isn't a criticism of Mike Anderson. It's not a teardown Mike Anderson, because Mike Anderson uh, was kind of from the glory days under Nolan Richardson. And so Mike Anderson had a pretty good run at Arkansas. He was there eight years. It took him four years to get to the NCAA tournament. But over his final five years... Arkansas made three NCAA tournaments and an NIT. 2015, they make the round of 32. 2016, they missed the NCAA tournament. 2018, they make the round of 32. 2018, they make the round of 64. 2019, they make the NIT. And so as an outsider to Arkansas basketball, I think most of us, and I'm going to include myself, I thought that's pretty good. Three tournaments in five years, whatever. It's Arkansas, who cares, whatever. But at the same time, Hunter Juracek, the AD, said, no, that's not good enough. And Arkansas fans, to your credit, you said, no, that is not good enough. We are Arkansas. We won a national championship in 1994. We made a Final Four in 95. We've made other Final Fours before that. We have seen what Arkansas basketball can be operating at its highest level. And I am sorry, but no. No, 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 no. What is going on at Arkansas under Mike Anderson is not acceptable. Doesn't make him a bad human being. Doesn't make him a bad guy. In a lot of ways, he was a great steward for the program at that time. Again, coached under Nolan. He played under Nolan Richardson. Coached under Nolan Richardson at Arkansas, and he was good. He was fine. But three NCAA tournaments in five years, zero Sweet 16, zero Elite Eight, zero Final Four, zero National Championships. Obviously, is not good enough. And so three off seasons ago, Hunter Yurchek sat down with Mike Anderson and said, "Look, I appreciate you." I appreciate what you've done, but we expect more from this program, and we need to be great. And we can be great, and there's no excuse for us not to be great, and so we are going to go in another direction. And my understanding about that meeting, and this is just secondhand knowledge that I've heard, was that Hunter Yurchek did go to Mike Anderson and said, look, we believe we can be better. What are you going to do to fix it? And Mike Anderson seemed to be content with three tournaments in five years. Hunter Yurchek says it's not good enough, and so he goes out and gets Eric Musselman. And by the way, I'll say this, I get a lot of stuff wrong, but the day Eric Musselman was hired, you can find the videos and the podcasts and the Instagram posts and the periscopes at the time. And I remember uh, a friend of mine, Dorian Kraft, who covered uh, Arkansas at the time, I did her TV show. And I said, this is a home run. This is the guy. 
This is the guy that Arkansas fans have been waiting for, and we have seen it over the last three years, and it was on full display Saturday, okay? So this isn't an Arkansas-Kentucky breakdown, but it is to say that for years, Arkansas believed that they should be better. They, they, they held themselves to a higher standard. They said, we have all the resources. We have all the facilities. We have great high school players. We'll pay whatever. We'll do whatever. But we expect more from our team and from our program. Let's go out and get a guy that can do that. And what we saw on Saturday was they have found that guy, and now we all, the outsiders, myself included, get to see what Arkansas is operating at the highest level of college basketball. We saw just an insanely passionate fan base. We saw two, three weeks ago where they're camping up, for, camping out for days at a time to get ready for that Auburn game. We saw all the craziness of the student section, the insanity. Uh, we saw, by the way, the product on the court where Arkansas once again has a team that is good enough to win a national championship. And the crazy part is there is no reason to think that it's going to slow down. Eric Musselman has the number two recruiting class of the country coming in next year. So we're going to talk about Coach Muss in a minute. But part of the success of Arkansas basketball right now absolutely has to go to Hunter Yurchek, the AD of Arkansas, because he looked in the mirror and he said, I'm here. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. I only get one shot at being an SEC AD, and I am not going to accept being okay. Okay is not good enough. Being good is not good enough. And so, so much credit to Hunter Juracek for what he has done. Really quickly, I, I need to talk about Coach Moss, right? And every time I talk about Coach Moss, oh, you just like him because he's on your podcast. And I think you guys and girls know me well enough to know. Like, if I didn't think a guy was capable of doing the job, I don't care if he's on my podcast or not. I'd criticize him. I'd say he's not good enough. But as I watch Arkansas and I watch how this program has developed and evolved and I watch what Eric Musselman is doing in only year three in this program, I had a thought the other day. I actually tweeted this after the Tennessee game and I think it's confirmed. To me, Eric Musselman is officially, he's definitively, I don't even think it's up for debate, the most underrated coach in college basketball. And I think we're starting to creep up on the territory. I think when you put together all of it, X's and O's, game day, planning, prep, recruiting, transfer portal recruiting, high school recruiting, whatever it is, I think we're getting to the point where we got to start talking about this guy as a top five coach in college basketball. It sounds crazy, but hear me out. Because here's the thing. If you just look at Coach Muss's track record and his resume over the last five years, I mean, it's borderline incredible, right? First of all, goes to Nevada. Nevada was the worst team in the Mountain West the year before he got there. Year one, he wins 24 games. By year three, he takes Nevada to the Sweet 16, the freaking Nevada Wolfpack. And by year four, they start the season in the top 10 with Cody and Caleb Martin. I mean, Nevada basketball started in the top 10 under Eric Musselman. That's absolutely incredible. From there, you move on. By the way, Nevada has completely fallen apart, the way I told you it would on this podcast under Steve Alford, by the way. He leaves Nevada. The program completely falls apart. They're in like 6th, 7th, 8th place in the, SE, in, in the Mountain West. But look at what Eric Musselman has done since he's gotten to Arkansas. And so when I say he's the most underrated coach, let me just throw out some facts for you, some facts and figures. First of all, I say it all the time, 2019-2020, his first year, he, uh, his best player, Isaiah Todd, Mason Jones was the best player on that team. Isaiah Todd was the best professional, um, you know, best pro prospect. And Isaiah Todd gets hurt. If Isaiah Todd doesn't get hurt, Arkansas is very comfortably in the NCAA tournament. Uh, they were on the bubble when the tournament was canceled. Year two, last year, Arkansas makes an Elite Eight, okay? Arkansas made an Elite Eight last year for the first time since 1994. So first of all, that, that in and of itself 
is like borderline incredible. Guy comes in year two, elite eight, first time in 27 years at that point. Beyond that, what's more impressive to me is what he has done this season, okay? Because you can write off last year as a fluke or it was COVID or you got hot late or you did this or you did that or whatever. Well, now look at 2022. Arkansas has won 13 of its last 14. Uh, they They had before the loss to Alabama a few weeks ago an eight-game SEC win streak, which I don't think can be undersold. Arkansas, you want a stat? How about this for a stat? Arkansas had not had an eight-game win streak in the SEC since 1994 during that championship run, okay? Hadn't had one. They now have eight-game SEC win streaks twice in three years under Eric Musselman. They had one late last year, and they had one late this year. On top of that, um, you look at the fact that now with the Kentucky win, and this is not a criticism of Kentucky. If they're at full strength, they're awesome. They can beat anybody. But with the Kentucky win, Arkansas is now 8-1 in their last nine games against top 25 teams in the AP. They've beaten the, the, the number one team in the SEC standings at home. That was the Auburn Tigers. They beat the number two team, Kentucky. They're actually tied with Kentucky, so Kentucky might technically be three at this point. They beat Tennessee at home. So the top four teams, there are four clear-cut definitive best teams in the SEC. Arkansas has beaten all three of them, 3-0 against those teams. And so when I look at what Coach Muss has done, and oh, by the way, I didn't even mention, he's proven to be a great recruiter. He, tr- he recruits the portal. I think the one thing that he does that he doesn't get enough appreciation for, he develops transfers. I think we think of these transfers as plug-and-play guys, as guys that you come in for one year, you're a star, and you leave. Well, J.D. Note, this is his third year in the program. Transfers from Jacksonville, I'll be honest, I had never heard of him. Sits out as a red shirt. Last year, he's a sixth man. This year, he's probably the second best player in the SEC besides Oscar Sheepway. So I think there's that part of it. And now he's recruiting at an elite high school level. Two McDonald's All-Americans in this high school class, uh, Jordan Walsh and Nick Smith Jr. Uh, obviously brought in Moses Moody last year. A couple guys also from that recruiting class, top 100 players. Uh, K.K. Robinson, who's still on the team, he's been banged up. Jalen Williams and Devo Davis, who are the backbone of this team as well. And so when I look at Eric Musselman, I'm going to get off this. We're going to go to Syracuse. We're going to go to Art Browse. We'll wrap the show. But I just sit there and say, just think about where we are in college basketball. Think we are where we are with this one-time transfer stuff, with NIL, with the fact that all of these rosters are going to flip over every single year. Think about what Eric Musselman has done about five, six years as a Division I head coach dating back to Nevada where he went to the Sweet 16, where he had a top 10 team. Now think about what he's doing at Arkansas. They made an Elite Eight two years ago. Last year, they're in position to probably be a top two, three seed again this year. And think about where they could be as they continue to recruit at an elite level. And I sit there and I start to say, name me guys that are the more complete package than Eric Musselman, right? Like, like I said this on a radio show, and it blew somebody's mind. But like five, six years ago, right, what was the, who was the number one candidate every time a job opened up? It was pretty much Tony Bennett before he won a national championship at Virginia. And now I think we all kind of understand, like, look, okay, at the end of the day, um, you know, Tony Bennett's not leaving Virginia. But for a long time, um, you know, Tony Bennett was like the number one candidate for all of these jobs. Won a national championship, he's no longer a candidate. But I ask you this, over the next five years, would you rather have Tony Bennett as a head coach or would you rather have Eric Musselman as a head coach? Because I kind of believe that Tony Bennett in the one-time transfer world where guys don't want to sit out, where guys don't want to wait, where guys don't want a red shirt, where guys don't want to not play as freshmen and sophomores, I don't know if I want that guy. I do know I want Eric Musselman, who brings in transfers, who brings in high school players, whatever. 
So I'm off the topic. I didn't mean to make this a 15-minute Arkansas conversation, but um, you know, I just give so much credit to the school for saying being good enough is not being good enough. And again, I think Coach Muss is one of the most underrated coaches in college basketball. So what I'll do, take a quick break. Two more segments. The first one, you know who's not one of the most underrated coaches in college basketball? Uh, Jim Mayheim. Syracuse stinks, and I'm telling you, I think it's time we start having a real conversation. Coach Beheim, I'm not telling you you got to leave, but you kind of got to leave. I'll be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final College Hoops segment of the show, uh, and I do want to switch gears, and I do, uh, do want to talk about a team, a program, a conference that we haven't talked all that much about, and that is the Syracuse Orange out of the ACC. And if you listen to this podcast, we haven't talked much about Syracuse this year. We haven't talked much about the ACC this year. The ACC is really bad, and Syracuse is really bad. Don't generally talk about bad teams on this show. We don't talk much Washington State basketball. We don't talk much Illinois football. And we don't talk Syracuse basketball because they stick. But something happened on Saturday that I do think is worth noting, and that was that Syracuse welcomed what was unquestionably the best team that they have had in, in Syracuse all season long. They welcome in the Duke Blue Devils, Coach K's final year. It's down to a couple weeks of the regular season. And in Coach K's second-to-last road game of his storied career, he goes up to the the Carrier Dome in Syracuse. 30-plus thousand fans in the stands. I would venture to guess, I don't know, 98-plus percent of them were wearing orange, and it was an absolute madhouse. Best crowd that they have had in forever. Uh, They said during the broadcast it was the most students that they have ever had for a game at the Carrier Dome. So great crowd, great environment, everybody's excited. And then what happens? Game tips off, and Duke just runs away with it. The Auburn-Tennessee game on ESPN ran late by the time we got to the broadcast. Duke was up 14-0. Then they were up 20-4. And by the end of the game, we got a final score that wasn't really a final score so much as it was a butt-whooping. Duke beats Syracuse in Coach K's final trip to Syracuse, final score, 97-72, and I'm just going to say it. It is time that we have a big boy adult conversation. I know that Jim Beheim's a legend. I know he's an all-time great. I know it's weird thinking about Syracuse basketball and college basketball without him, and to be clear, I don't even want him to retire because he's one of the few links left from my childhood when I first became a college basketball fan. But I do think if you're a Syracuse fan, enough is enough. It's time to be official. It's time to be honest, and it's time to be serious. It's really time to start having a conversation about whether it's time for Jim Boeheim to step aside as Syracuse head coach. Again, not forcing him out, not wishing him out. I wish he turned things around, but it's time to have that conversation. And to kind of go big picture here for a second, let me say this. I know what a lot of people, and certainly any Syracuse fan that is familiar with my work, is thinking. Torres, you're a UConn alum. UConn used to be Syracuse rival. You are reveling in Syracuse being terrible. You're enjoying it. Stop it. You're just trashing our program for the sake of trashing it. And what I would say is it's actually the exact opposite, right? When you are a fan of a school, even though UConn and Syracuse don't play, we're still kind of, I don't, I don't want to say we're, we're rivals because we don't play, but you want the teams that you know can be great to be great. Listen, we got a lot of Kentucky fans that listen to this show. I'm telling you right now, you know who wants Louisville to be good every single year besides Louisville fans? It's Kentucky fans. So when Kentucky beats them and Kentucky plays them, there's something to be, you know, they're playing for something. It means something. It means something for their rival. It means something for the state. 
And so while UConn doesn't play Syracuse anymore, I still want Syracuse to be good because I have seen Syracuse at its absolute highest level. Let me tell you a quick story. So first of all, I'm blessed to do what I do. I I think you can like me, you can hate me, whatever, but I don't think anybody disagrees that I clearly have an excitement and a passion for what I do as a job. And in doing this job for the past 15, 20 years, dating back to when I was in college, um, I've had the chance to go to most of the biggest and best venues in college basketball. I've been to games at Rupp Arena. It's incredible. I've been to games at Gamble Pavilion at UConn. I've been to Pauley Pavilion. I've been to the McHale Center. I have been to so many great venues, not all of them, but a lot of them. And what I would tell you is this. There is no home court anywhere in college basketball like the Carrier Dome at Syracuse. I have been to the Carrier Dome. I have been there for big games dating back to probably about a decade, 12, 15 years ago. I have been in that building when there is 30-plus thousand people for a huge game, and I am just telling you there is nothing like it. It is so big, so spacious, so loud, so crazy, so maniacal that to me um, it's kind of sad to see the place half empty and not operating at uh, the capacity, the Syracuse program, the way that it should. Because this should be a top 15 program, bar none in all of college basketball. This should be a program, I'm not saying you got to win a national championship every year, but I do believe you you can have a program that can compete at the highest level. It's probably right there behind Duke, UNC, maybe Louisville, as no worse than the fourth best job in college basketball. I would argue the a top 10 to 12 job in college basketball, and there is nothing like Syracuse basketball at the Carrier Dome. I'm telling you, you bring a recruit into that place in a game that matters, I would venture to guess that if Syracuse is doing what they're supposed to be, you bat pretty close to 1,000% on on your recruiting because it is such a unique home court environment. And Syracuse, I truly believe, is one of the most underrated fan bases in college basketball. I've said it for years. There's two fan bases that I believe are the most underrated in all of college basketball. I think there are many that are properly rated. Kentucky is properly rated. It's a crazy fan base. They call it Big Blue Nation for a reason. Um, I think that uh, Kansas fans are great. I think that Gonzaga fans are great. I think that UCLA fans are great. There are two that I believe are the most underrated in college basketball. Arizona is one. Go to a Pac-12 tournament. It's 99% Arizona fans. They call it the Arizona Invitational. I was just in Tucson. The entire city, the entire state outside of Tempe and ASU fans bleeds Arizona basketball. The other one is Syracuse. When you can put 35,000 people in a football stadium, people care And again, it goes back to my days as a a UConn fan, a UConn alum living in the Northeast, going to the old Big East tournament, where UConn would always bring a lot of fans, but there would never be more UConn blue than Syracuse orange. And so I bring it up because at its absolute best, Syracuse should be operating at just an insane level where you're not competing for a national championship every year, but you're kind of in that next tier, maybe a team like Purdue or I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think here off the top of my head, just looking at the top 25 standings, the way that UConn is right now, where UConn's not, I don't think UConn's going to win a national championship, but they've been in the top 20 all year. Uh, They can obviously beat anybody, and I'm not saying they're the best team in college basketball, but they ain't 15 and 14 overall. Maybe kind of the equivalent, again, of what a Wisconsin is, what a Purdue is, what Texas Tech has been the last four or five years. A program that's perennially in the top 20 and once every two or three years has a chance to win a conference championship, get a number one seed, and win a national championship. And that's where Jim Beheim comes in. 
because I'm not criticizing the guy. I'm not saying that he is not a Hall of Famer and an all-time great that has over a 1,000 career wins. But what this program has become is so much less than what it is capable of being. Let me go ahead and pull up some stats about Syracuse basketball over the last eight seasons of Syracuse basketball. Because I think they'll blow you away, right? We know they left the Big East. We know they've been in the ACC. And by the way, year one in the ACC, they were awesome. 28-6, and 14-4, second place in the ACC. Here's the problem. The eight years that have happened since. Let me just go ahead and read you what Syracuse's win-loss record has been over the previous eight seasons dating back to the 2014-2015 season. They went 18-13, and 13, finished eighth in the ACC. They went, after the 18-13, and, and 23-14, finished ninth in the ACC. They went 19-15, and 15, finished seventh in the ACC. 2018, 23, and 14, 10th in the ACC, 20 and 14 in 2019, 7th in the ACC, 18 and 14, 6th in the ACC in 2020. Last year they go 18 and 10, 9 and 7 in the ACC. And with the loss to Duke on Saturday, they are 15 and 14 this year, 9 and 9 in the ACC. I am not great at math, but that means that they are 169 and 108 overall over the last eight years which is a 61% win percentage, and they are 74-70 and 70 in the ACC. Does that sound like a top five program to you? Does that sound like a top 10 program to you? Does that sound like one of the best programs in the ACC to you? It doesn't, and so to me, you have to start asking some tough questions about Jim Beheim. Not saying he's a bad guy. Not saying he does. All I'm saying is this is a program that that deserves to be considered among the best in college basketball, and it is so far from it. And here is the, the, the crazy part. They've actually had success in the tournament. And so I think it's a little bit divisive within the Syracuse fan base, and I think it kind of gets to the existential question of what you want to be as a fan. Because in college basketball, we determine so much by the NCAA tournament, and I can't deny that over the last seven, eight years – even as crazy as Bayheim's been, he's had some success. Made a Final Four in 2016. Made a Sweet 16 in 2018. Made a Sweet 16 in 2021. So over those eight years, Syracuse has gone 74 and 70 in the ACC, basically 50% win percentage in the ACC. But they've made three Sweet 16s in a Final Four. And so it's that tough question of, yes, I understand that we are not great in the regular season, but just get us into the tournament and we can make moves. My problem is that increasingly, that is how the program is defined. When I was young, when most of you were young, when most of you started watching college basketball, this was one of the best programs in college basketball. This was a program that, as I just said, every year or two, they were consistently in the top 10, capable of winning a national championship, capable of doing anything. From 2009, just let's just use 20, 2009 to 2014, th- uh, four Sweet 16s, Two Elite Eights at a Final Four in 2013. So, like, and by the way, 2012, they were the number one team in the country for part of the year, the year that Kentucky won the national championship. So, what I'm saying is this, is that I think it's so, like, I think it's great that they make the tournament every once in a while and make a run, but that's kind of who they have become in modern college basketball. They're no longer an elite program. They're no longer a feared program. The Carrier Dome is no longer one of the most intimidating places to go to. Instead, it's the opposite. Their identity as a program is, hey, we're going to be a bubble team, 
and let's hope to get into the tournament and let's hope to make a run and let's hope to pull some upsets rather than being what Kansas is, what Kentucky is, what Duke is, what Carolina is most years, which is a team that's consistently in the top 10 to 20 and any given year can win a national title. And so I could go on and on with this one. Um, and, you know, listen, there, there's a couple reasons why I, I do think they've taken a step back. You know, one, Bayheim's just gotten older, right? He's 74 years old. Um, you know, you, if you believe that a, a head coach's peak is sometime between like 45 and 55, he's obviously past that. Um, I don't think the 2-3 zone helps. I think it's really hard to sell high school kids on wanting to play zone when every elite high school player wants to get to the NBA as fast as possible. They know that going to Syracuse isn't going to prepare you for it. And then finally, listen, you, you go search on Twitter – um, you know, there's some questions about about his two sons and, um, you know, the role that they play and do they sh- I'm not getting into that stuff. If if a Syracuse fan wants to criticize, you know, the the style of play or the coaching staff or the roster makeup or does the sun shoot too much? I'll leave that up to them. All I'm saying is that Syracuse basketball, I believe, should be operating at a top five, top 10, top 15 level in the sport. I don't think they're a top 30 program right now in college basketball, which is a darn shame. And I'll take it a step further. Um, you know, a few, a few uh, you know, I've heard people in my business kind of say that, well, you know, uh, uh, Syracuse, you know, like, what are they going to be once Bayheim leaves? And they got to be careful because they could fall into irrelevance. I actually feel like it's the opposite. I feel like they've fallen into irrelevance. I feel like Jim Beheim is the problem, and I actually feel like Jim Beheim is the guy that's holding them back from being capable of what they are. I just want to do take a quick break. I do want to come back, and I do want to wrap a little bit of a serious topic. Art Bryles back in college football. We'll discuss that next. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. Good to be back, as I just said, final segment of the show. Uh, and I want to talk a little college football. Obviously, College Hoops has been the center of focus on today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I get that. It's that time of year. Tomorrow is March. So, yeah, if you don't like College Hoops, um, don't know what to tell you because this is an awesome time. But there is a very uh, important topic going on in the world of college football, and it is something that I do want to discuss here on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It's a little bit serious, but the one thing we never do is shy away from serious topics on the show. And it has to do with Grambling State football, HBCU, college football, NCAA, etc. And if you've been following the story, you kind of know the details. But basically, I would say just in general, uh, it's been a really cool kind of two, three, four year kind of re, you know, renaissance, if you will, of HBCU football. Obviously, Deion Sanders is doing amazing work at, at Jackson State, brought in uh, some elite recruits, including Travis Hunter. Uh, Eddie George is coaching at the HBCU level. And a few weeks ago, Hugh Jackson, the former Cleveland Browns and Oakland Raiders head coach, was hired as the head coach at, at uh, Grambling State. Grambling State is an iconic, um, you know, historic HBCU program, kind of like a Miami or Nebraska of, of the HBCU world. Wasn't, isn't great now, hasn't been great, great lately, but was great and was one of the best programs at the HBCU level for years and years and years and years and years. So a few weeks ago, they hire Hugh Jackson, and Hugh Jackson, um, in an unfortunate twist of news, did make some very serious headlines late last week when he announced who his new offensive coordinator would be. It's Art Bryles, the former uh, disgraced Baylor head coach who was accused and, and found guilty in some cases of covering up all sorts of gross things. It has become a national story. I saw Stephen A. Smith talking about it on first take a few days ago, and let me say this. 
We're going to get into all the details, but my opinion on this is what my opinion is often on topics like this. I obviously don't agree with what Art Bryles did. In some ways, I find it reprehensible. In some ways, I find it disgusting. But if you listen to me talk about Juwan Howard, why he shouldn't be fired, I'm not comparing the two. But I believe that everybody deserves a chance to work. I believe everyone deserves a chance to have an opportunity. And if Hugh Jackson believes that Art Bryles is the best man for the job, then I believe that he should go ahead and be allowed to take this job. So let's get into it. Let's talk about it because it is, again, a very serious topic. Uh, But Art Bryles, I mean, listen, it's kind of crazy to me. Art Bryles last coached at Baylor seven years ago. That sounds crazy for me to even think about. But the last time that Art Bryles coached at Baylor, it was 2015. And at that time, to his credit, I mean, he had Baylor operating at just an insane level. And I know it's easy to think now that Baylor, oh, Baylor, they're good. They're awesome. Baylor was one of the most irrelevant college football programs of the 2000s, 2010s, before Art Bryles got there. They were a mess. They are what Vanderbilt is now, maybe even worse. And over time, he built them into one of the most respectable programs in college football. It obviously helped that Robert Griffin III gets there, wins a Heisman Trophy, and really in his final few years as the head coach at Baylor, they are really humming, like at an elite level. His final three years at Baylor, they finished 11-2, and 11-2, and 10-3. and uh, One year, they were number five in the final college football playoff rankings, the first year of the college football playoff. If something goes a little bit different, they might have been one of the four teams in the first ever college football playoff. But then towards the end of Art Brow's career, um, we find out that some some really, really, really bad stuff is happening on campus and that essentially his players have been accused of doing a lot of different things. Most notably, there are quite a few sexual assaults that have been covered up by the university involving football players. And so it becomes this big, huge national scandal. Again, I know a lot of you guys don't remember the details, but it becomes this big, huge national scandal, and Art Bryles loses his job. And so to be clear, I want to kind of get into it because, first of all, one, if you're an Art Bryles defender, let me say this. He's not the only one that was guilty of wrongdoing at Baylor. Uh, The AD, Ian McCaw, got fired. On top of that, the school president, who was uh, Kenneth Starr at the time, he gets fired. Uh, So it's not as though... Art Browse was the only one, and in Art Browse's defense, some of the things that he was accused of were later found to not be true. Uh, there was a player named Sean Oakman who famously was accused of one of these crimes and accusations, and it took until very recently, it took until just a few, I don't know, probably about two, two and a half years ago, but it took until like late 2018, 2019, somewhere in there, for him to actually be acquitted and found innocent of what the charges were. So it's not to say that everything that Baylor players were accused of under Art Browse were true. It's not to say that he was the only one that could have done more. But there was an independent counsel outside of the school that believes that the school administration could have done more to prevent um, you know, some of the, the, the things that happened within the players. The NCAA did its own report And here is how the NCAA described Art Bryles and how he handled some of the sexual assault allegations. This is directly from an NCAA report. The head coach failed to meet even the most basic expectations of how a person should react to the kind of conduct at issue in this case. Furthermore, as a campus leader, the head coach is held to an even higher standard. He completely failed to meet this standard. It's very serious stuff, and it's very heavy stuff, and as we move forward, a couple things. One, 
This story, again, is a national headline. Stephen A. Smith was talking about it. Pretty much everybody in sports is talking about it at this point and is sharing an opinion, including prominent Grambling alums who are not very happy with the decision. Doug Williams, who won a Super Bowl with the Washington, then Redskins, then they became the football team, now they're the Commanders. The Washington, former Washington Redskins quarterback, who, of course, was a Grambling State quarterback as well, he came out on Friday and he said this, I don't know Art Browse, I've never met him, but the situation... Nobody else would hire him for whatever reason. I don't know why Grambling State had to be the one to go hire him, so I am not a fan at all. And let me say this. Let me say a couple things. I think if you guys have listened to the show, guys and girls, you know where I stand on most of this stuff. To be clear, I respect the opinion of people like Doug Williams. To be clear, I am not absolving Art Bryles for what he did and the role that he played in this situation. And to be clear, I'm not saying that if I was Hugh Jackson... I would have personally hired him. I'm not saying that if you're a fan of Grambling State, you can't be frustrated. I'm not saying that you're, if you're a fan of any of these schools that hire any of these guys, you're not allowed to, to just basically say no. But what I will also say is this. My stance on all of this stuff for years has been clear and will remain clear and will not change. I believe that everybody that commits any sort of act, they have to face justice, whatever justice is like. In some cases... That's the criminal justice system, and it may mean prison time. It may mean this. It may mean that. In other cases, it may just be NCAA justice, and it may mean a show cause, whatever. But what I believe is that once the justice system is played out, whether it's an actual criminal case, whether it's NCAA, whatever, once the justice system plays out, a man or woman should be allowed to work, and I believe that if Hugh Jackson believes that Art Browse is the best man for the job, and history kind of says he probably is, that Art Browse deserves to work. And to be clear, this is not a new opinion. This has not changed. This has been a universal stance of mine pretty much since I've been doing this in any way, shape, or form. Didn't have a podcast in in 2014 when the Ray Rice stuff happened, but I'll tell you, I said this about Ray Rice at the time. We all saw the video. It was disgusting. It was scary. It was, you can't even come up with words. Um, And Ray Rice had a lot of tough people to answer to. He had to answer to his then fiance, now wife. I, I believe they're now married. He had to answer to the justice system. But once Ray Rice cleared the justice system, I'll be honest, I thought if the Baltimore Ravens wanted to re-sign him, I had no problem with it. I thought if another team wanted to re-sign him, I had no problem with it. Now, Ray Rice was on the back end of his career, and the negative publicity that came with it um, was not worth the, 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 the act of signing him. But if somebody wanted to sign him, whether it was the Baltimore Ravens, whether it was the New England Patriots, whether it was the Green Bay Packers, whatever, I would have had no problem with it. Uh, in a different note, I've talked about this before. Michael Vick uh, went to jail for dogfighting. My mom, love her to death. She's an animal advocate. Every time she sees Michael Vick on TV, why is he on TV? Why is he allowed to work? I don't like it. I said, Mom, I understand your frustration. I am not saying that you're wrong, but what I would say about it is this, is it is my personal opinion that Michael Vick committed a crime. The stuff that he's accused of, if you don't know, you can Google it, but it's like sad and gross, right? But he went to prison, he served his time, he served his debt to society, and like he's allowed to make a living. You don't have to hire him. You don't have to watch him if he's on TV. You don't have to listen if he's on a podcast or radio show. But he's allowed to make a living. He's allowed to make money. Matter of fact, he's... could be mistaken. I think he still owes money to some people because of everything that happened over that. And so it's the same with Art Bryles. I'm not saying what that I like what he did. 
It's disgusting. I think we all agree on that. But I also believe the man is allowed to make a living. And so when I look at this situation, I'll be curious to see what happens next. Because I do think there's some public pressure, and I don't think that, um, and I don't think that this is a situation that's going to go away. I guess there's some kind of board meeting in which they could potentially nix the hire. So we'll see what happens from there. But I'll just say really quick, I want to wrap. The show's going long, as it always does. I don't like what Art Browse was guilty of. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying he's a good human being. But the man is allowed to make a living. And I believe if Grambling State believes he's qualified for the job, that they should be able to hire him. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aratora Sports Podcast. What a show we had today. A lot of ground covered. Art Bryles, Jim Beheim, top six teams, all that good stuff. I got to get out of here. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. All the same stuff, by the way. Uh, last minute, if you do think that you, you have a, a product that needs to be advertised with us, uh, the Aaron Torres Podcast, Aaron Torres Media, let us know before March Madness. We'll get you squeezed in. Uh, also, make sure uh, you got your merch, your Big Pig Invasion shirts if you're an Arkansas fan, your Mike F. and Woodson shirts if you're an Indiana fan, and, of course, your Kentucky Revenge Tour T-shirts. Uh, those are available at AaronTorresOnline.com. And that's really it. I got to get out of here. I got stuff to do. You got to go on with your day. So with that said, I just got one thing to say. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Wednesday. New episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.